the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Today's edition of the Spot Track Podcast is presented by The Athletic. Visit theathletic.com slash spot track. Get 40% off your first year subscription. Download the app, personalize it with your favorite teams and leagues, and get exclusive ad-free content at your fingertips. I use The Athletic all morning to prepare for this podcast, which is going to bounce around to multiple sports, which is the beauty of The Athletic. Visit theathletic.com slash spot track. Get started today. My name is Mike Giannetti. Happy Monday. Big week for uh, finals here. The NBA should be wrapping up here within the uh, next few days. And the NHL is going to kick off in the next few days. And I'm going to start with the NHL, something I know a lot of, uh, a lot of shows don't do. But I want to give it its due. A, this is the premier matchup. I think this is where many of the experts had their predictions to start the season. These were clearly the two deepest, most talented teams. And it's neck and neck because Tampa Bay is a bit depleted. I think Braden Point comes back in this series. That appears to be what's about to happen. And they have the clear advantage at goaltending. And oh, by the way, they're a back-to-back Stanley Cup champion. So we're talking about a three-peat here. So I, if, if ever there was a time for the NHL to be back in the forefront right now, it's now because you've got two powerhouse teams in Colorado and Tampa Bay, one going for a three-peat, one trying to get to the finish line after really a bunch of years of getting close and kind of trying to figure this out with number one overall picks, something I think we're expecting or I've been tend to figure out over the next couple of years here with McDavid. This is the matchup we have. So I, I bet if you, if you polled 25 experts right now, many would be swinging Colorado because they're, they're the younger, faster, maybe more potent team right now, but I'm not going against Tampa Bay. <laughs> a, I want to see the three Pete. I think it'd be great for the sport, even if it's not a Canadian team doing it. And it's a Florida hockey team, which, my goodness, couldn't be worse for ratings. But they deserve this. Yes, they've trickled the loophole line with this long-term injured reserve, and they did it again this year in the middle of the road but with Kucherov. But th- this is business. You know, they are, they kind of smell and feel Patriots-like. If you're an NFL fan looking for a compliment here, that's what they feel like to me. They come back every year with a couple of tinkers to the roster. They don't overpay anybody. They get everybody kind of one or two million under market price in terms of their average salary cap hit. Just feels like they're a they're a well run organization with savvy vets and and it's the E word. That's what I'm leaning towards here when I'm talking about this final. It's experience. Yes, Colorado is faster. Yes, they have more playmakers. I'm not going to discount that one one iota. That's what they are. They are fun as hell to watch. But experience matters here. And if Tampa Bay, who has the goalie advantage, can slow down the power play, can slow down, you know, the run gun that is the Colorado offense, that goalie advantage should show its face. And you get a player like Point back. You put a couple of guys like Stamkos up front that have been through this literally over the past 700 days. And I think that matters in the end. So I'm a slight advantage to Tampa Bay, A, because I want to see the three-peat. And B, because I just think this is what wins this time of year. This is the, uh, they have the recipe yet again to do what they have to do. They can certainly be overpowered here. And if they do so, it's going to be really fun to watch because Colorado is that kind of team. They can just outscore you. You know, it feels a little bit like the Yankees right now in, off, uh, in, in Major League Baseball. I don't think they're the most beautiful team to watch on the field in New York right now, but they are putting up some serious runs. It's like 130 run differential right now. Runs scored versus runs allowed. So that's a bit of what we have in Colorado here. 
And if Tampa Bay can thwart that to some degree, I do give them the slight advantage. So that starts Wednesday. It's worth your time. If you have any kind of interest in the sport, I know it's tough to watch the hockey in June. It just is, even for me, somebody who kind of follows this thing in a hockey town like Buffalo. But these two teams are worth the price of admission. And if you're thinking about an offseason that's about to come up here, how, how are you going to improve your team? There's two very different built processes in front of us here. A, like I said, Tampa Bay is kind of this dynasty now, this Warriors, Patriots type dynasty where the system knows itself so well they can plug and play. That's an effective, obviously an effective way to do it. It's a rare way to do it. That's not how sports really operates anymore. So let's appreciate what that is. But if you've, if you've got a team with a core and you think it's something you can relish, and if you've got, if you've got players who are going to take a few million less to keep this thing together, if that's the team you follow, then Tampa Bay is the team you're, you're watching right now, not only on the ice, but also what they're doing off the ice. And if not, I think Colorado is a much more traditional route, which is they basically stunk for a decade, loaded up on number one picks, tried to figure out how to manipulate that young talent with some veteran savviness and figure out the goaltending problem, which I think they've somewhat done. They've got above average goaltending, but it's just not top tier. And look, that's kind of the price you pay for going through this process and taking superstar playmakers with your top picks and and trying to get these, you know, fill in the blanks from there. There's a lot of teams that get to this point and can't get to the finish line because of goaltending and or lack of shutdown defense. We'll see if Colorado can can kind of buck that trend. But I think the Avalanche represent a lot more of the NHL than Tampa Bay does. And that's probably an obvious thing to say out loud. But if we're talking about other sports, you know, I don't think there's a lot of people in the NBA trying to model the Warriors. <laughs> you know, there's such an enigma, such an anomaly. Um, you know, Boston's certainly a more traditional approach. Boston is the Colorado approach, whereas they went young. Now, they made some extremely creative moves with dra- traded draft picks, flat out trades themselves to kind of manipulate this process, maybe even speed up this process to go around Tatum and Brown. Um, and I'd give Colorado some of that credit as well. There's been some savvy GM work there as well to, to work around the McKins and the McCars. But you have to have the foundation in place. And then you have to have these kids grow up in the right system. And that's, I think, what Colorado has done. And certainly Boston, to, you know, the, the Boston Celtics, if we're comparing sports here, maybe a more non-traditional approach. I mean, the, the coach that sort of massaged this whole situation is now sitting in the GM room. And there's a brand new coach who's a little bit more defensive minded, who may be the right recipe, the right ingredient to get this thing to the finish line for them. It's really unique that these two finals are happening right now. There's a bit of a, a connection between a growing dynasty in Tampa Bay and Golden State and just young guns that kind of grew up together and built a core around them in Boston and Colorado. We'll see which, uh, which gets to the finish line because obviously the NBA is now tied up. Go either way. goes back to San Francisco here. And we'll see if experience pays off or if the young and gun shooters in uh, Boston, if it's their time. I think there's a lot of people thinking it's Colorado's time. And I would bet in the NBA world at this point, even though it's 2-2 and Boston just got punched in the mouth a little bit here, my guess would be most people still think it's Boston series to lose. So a lot of similarities, a lot of comparables, but if you're a, even a small minutia of a hockey fan, this is the series you're looking for, for a lot of reasons, for a lot of these storylines. All right. I'm going to switch gears to golf real quick because it's obviously a hot topic with the, the live split, the PGA situation, the backlash, the bannings, the suspensions, the, the yada yada. It's all out there. Um, try not to get too opinionated with this stuff. I am going to say this. 
one positive and one negative about this current situation. Number one is the PGA has never been tested like this, ever, 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 ever. And there's a lot of sports that have never been tested like this. The NFL has had attempts at competition, and they're coming back in the fold. And I, I wouldn't consider the USFL any kind of attempt in competing, especially at the time that they're playing. The, the XFL is, is ramping up to at least make a run at it, to at least make a, a serious run at, at a change in the model, at a change in the gameplay, at a change in the structure. And we'll see what kind of monetary and financial ramifications that, that, that come together with the second version of this, or a third, but kind of version 2.1, right? Um, it seems like they're really slowing down in the XFL to take their time and get, get everything right this time, whereas they maybe rushed it last time because they had an opportunity with the NFL sort of floundering at the time. That's obviously not the case right now. But PGAs never have this. They've never had a serious contender with this kind of financial backing, with the numbers being thrown out there. And, and, and look, this is obviously all about the money. That's all you've heard over and over about this live tour. You know, many of these, these golf game uh, tournaments are being played in America. So it's not like this is an international thing to, to, to the nth degree where it's staying away from America. You essentially have to leave the country to do this. No, this is on par with what the PGA is offering. Shorter, shorter season, shorter tournaments, 54 holes, guaranteed money, bigger purses, much, much bigger buy-ins in terms of what we consider, I guess, transfer fees or signing bonuses, I guess, based on what we're hearing. So I'm quickly going to go through the list here, and then I'm going to give you some quick thoughts, because I do think the PGA having competition is a positive. I'm going to make that a pro in this whole situation. It's going to push the PGA into a new world, whether it's we're going to stick with our guns, we're going to be who we are, which would be a very PGA thing to do there. It's all about tradition and, and history, and I don't think they want to change their framework too much. So that may be how this goes, in which case I don't have high hopes for that. Um, my con is going to be this before I read you off the numbers. One of the beauties of golf and one of the things that's so freaking relatable to watching a PGA tournament from Thursday to Sunday is seeing absolutely unbelievable golfers become humanized. Something we all go through, whether we're playing nine, whether we're going 18, whether we're joining a local match here, a local tournament here. We all have the ups and the downs, and they do too, you know? And to see somebody that doesn't have the up and down and have and put together a four-day stretch that is remarkable, it's one of the best things to watch in sports. It becomes the immediate headline. It dominates Sunday and Sunday sports news. It's just one of those things that sticks out and, and is rare. It's a unicorn. My point is the PGA is hard. And in turn, it's really hard to make money on the PGA Tour because of it. Because at any point in time, you can miss the cut and lose out and basically make you know, your, your fee back. Right? You're not earning any profit to miss the cut. And that's a big contention. That's what the live has figured out. There's no cut line. It's a guaranteed last place, $120,000 finish. That may be something that the, that the PGA Tour has to really look at to get at least in the conversation, financially speaking here. They're not going to... I don't think there's any way that the PGA Tour can match financially what Liv is offering here because the fields are shorter, the seasons are shorter. Everything about it is more compact, whereas the PGA is spread out over really an 11-month period now. And the point I'm trying to make here 
which is it's massively competitive. It's difficult. They put the majors on one of the most difficult courses, you know, in, in rotation in America or, or in, you know, in Europe. Everything about it is supposed to be difficult, including earning the paycheck. So to have somebody come in and say, screw that, we just want you to come out and play. We want you to be kind of a circus act. We just want you to go out there and play golf, and we're going to pay you no matter what, whether you shoot 80, whether you shoot 69. We're going to pay you. Okay? And there's some common sense to that. And maybe there's a need for this. But I look at players who are in the prime of their, of their career right now, like a DeChambeau or a Patrick Reed, I mean, Ryder Cup members, these guys leaving for this money is Bush League. I think it's total Bush League. Many of the other names, I get it. Even a Ricky Fowler, if and when he jumps ship fully, he, he's floundering. He's having a real tough time even hanging in PGA tournaments right now. So there's a real desire for a player like that to go and maybe even just resuscitate himself a little bit there, you know, and certainly financially resuscitate yourself. But it's not like he's even in contention right now. That's not the case with Patrick Reed and DeChambeau at all. I mean, they've become fringe favorites at many of these tournaments. Maybe not the biggest ones right now, but certainly some of the seasonal ones. I think it's Bush League that they're leaving at this stage of their career because the money is sitting there for them. That's not a reason to do this. All right. They think they're going to go and win and become superstars because they're going to run this season and be the best golfers there. And maybe they're going to be. But it's like, it's like being dropped down to the minor leagues and hitting 50 home runs and saying, see, I told you I was great all along. Well, no. You didn't do it in New York. You did it in Syracuse. <laughs> okay? And that's kind of how I see this right now. And until the live situation gets you know, much more reputable, bigger, that we see the kind of golf that we would normally see in a PGA tournament, which I don't think we're going to see right now, not after what we just saw over the past couple of days. I look at it as a Bush League transfer for players who have legitimate chances to win PGA tournaments right now. If you're past your prime or not even at your prime, right? If you're a 20-year-old kid and just looking for a payday to get yourself acclimated at this level, I have no, I have no problem with you going to this kind of situation. In fact, it's probably good business for you. But Patrick Reed and Bryson DeChambeau and players of that, of that earth who have legitimate chances and are betting odds favorites in many of these tournaments, you're just bailing out. You're just bailing out on, on competition is what you're doing for the paycheck. And I think that's the wrong decision right now. And I, do I think both of these things can exist and maybe should exist? Yes. I think the PGA being tested here is good for golf. Because like I said, I think some things can change. Maybe the pay for the cut line, maybe the cut line at all. Some of those things can change here over the next year or so. Do I think the PGA is going to blow this thing up? No. I think they're going to let this thing ride out, let some of this live stuff die down a little bit. Because A, will this kind of money be there indefinitely? That seems unrealistic. I mean, without a major marketing model, without, without a major network model, you are simply just bleeding cash for the reason of doing it, for the reason of trying to be another, another entity to, to reduce the monopolization of golf. That's what this is, all right? So unless there's an actual game, an end game here with eyeballs watching and viewership, and look, it doesn't have to be on CBS. 
you know, I'm, I'm not naive enough to think that this thing can't be streamed to make a ton of money, but it's not right now. There's no current plan for that to happen. It's going to have to be a year, two, three years before something really formulates and comes together, as we've seen with many of these other markets. But look, Premier League Lacrosse just signed a massive deal. Okay, these things can happen. Athletes Unlimited out of Chicago, the, the, the female competition, massive, te- massive deal. ESPN Plus. It's, it's possible. It's very possible. And everybody's looking for live sports right now. So again, I think this is a positive thing. The more live sports we can create, the better. And for a lot of these players, this is a perfect landing spot. Even a player like Sergio, who I think he's ruffled enough feathers in the PGA Tour and has shown enough discontent, and maybe his game isn't what it, what it needs to be anymore to really compete and make a good amount of money. Okay, Sergio Garcia just made $172,000 this past weekend playing for the Live Tour. And he finished 22nd, tied for 22nd. Okay. So I get it. I get it. What did the winner win? What did Charles Schwartz win? $4 million. All right. For reference to compare, Scotty Scheffler got $2.7 million for winning the Masters this year. Charles Schwartz just won $4 million bucks for the first live tournament on basically nothing tournament. Okay. In London. There's seven more of these. So you can understand where we are here. Many of these guys, like I said, got signing bonuses just to come on board. Dustin Johnson jump ship made $625,000 to finish eighth. The eighth place finisher at the Masters, Justin Thomas, earned $465,000. So we're somewhat comparable there. Okay. But then we get down to the bottom. And like I said, the 48th last place finisher, Andy Ogletree, made $120,000 which is the baseline guarantee in any live tournament. And if you go down to the Masters, the 50th spot after you made the cut, $37,800. Like I said, basically the fee and the travel expenses just to get to the Masters and, uh, and, and sort of break even. So you're talking four times as much to finish last place in a live tournament right now. And then, for those of you who haven't followed this, there's a team element to the live, live tournament. So on top of what you do individually with your own score and your own finish, the, there are basically foursomes put together, and Charles Schwartz's team, Stinger GC, bagged $475,000 extra per player. Per player. And that included Louis Ustase and a couple other names. So... It's a double-edged sword here. So it's not just how you finish. Then there's a combination of how you plus the rest of your teammates finish based on a team standings, and there's additional per-player money paid out there. So there's a lot to be made here. And, and you know, I know that's been said a lot, but when you see it in, or when you hear about it in this regard, you can understand the interest, the draw. I mean, there's a lot of ways to make money, a lot. Now, none of them currently include sponsorships, you know, maybe smaller ones here and there. But for the most part, anybody that jumped ship here lost their, their major sponsorships. Will that come, come back? Probably. Okay. It probably will. You know, we sit here and talk about the Saudi backing and it's a really ugly situation, but how many other sports are following this right now? It certainly exists in soccer. It certainly exists in UFC and MMA. Okay. And many of these other internationally, not super mainstream sports. All right. It's out there. The Saudi backing, the Saudi financials are, have their, are kind of weep weaved and webbed into a lot of these sports that we watch on many of these major networks. So 
I can't, I'm not going to tell you this is never going to get the kind of backing that it needs. I'm also going to tell you that I think it's good. Some of these guys don't belong here. And I hope that the PGA figures out how to make that stop from happening, whether it's improving their own financials, whether it's changing their gameplay slightly to, uh, to kind of keep up with pace here. And look, the NFL has done this. They've changed some things. They've added some things that other, other startup leagues have tried to do. And I think that'll continue to happen because you, at the end of the day, if you're a big enough entity, just making yourself better every year is going to improve everything, especially if it improves the television product. And that's, that, I think, is how many of these sports have to continue to think. Stop thinking about how to make us feel great when we're there, because unfortunately, that's going to be home a dying art. Liv doesn't even care. They don't even care who's there. Nobody's going to be there right now, and they don't care. Okay? It's not about that. They are completely thinking about the structure, making the players happy, making it a player-centric situation, which that's exactly how many of these major sports are working now, right? Player empowerment. Let's get the players happy. And then we'll figure out how to make the rest of the world jump on board when, when we're ready. We'll get people here. We'll get people watching. We'll, we'll find the right streaming partner and we'll go from there. But I give them a lot of credit. It's, a, it's an ugly situation from, from the backside looking in. And you can certainly voice your own opinions about that. I have my own. But I think there's pros and cons. And I do, I do believe it's good that it exists. For some reason, the comp- for the competition reason, for the evolution part of it. Um, but I certainly have my discontent with it as well. Talk some NFL quickly. Did some work this past week on just the, the shift in money, positionally speaking, because it's one of those things that fascinates me. And there's just been so many market resets over the past couple of weeks, certainly with the wide receiver position again and again and again, obviously with the quarterback position. But what else, right? What else has been really kind of jumped forward? over the past few years and maybe is on a really big trajectory to continue to do so. I'm not here to crap on certain positions. I think we all know which NFL positions are having trouble financially speaking, but some of these maybe will surprise you more than others, right? Nobody's, nobody's going to touch the quarterback position. It's had a 43% increase in average salary in top average salary over the past three off seasons. So if Russell Wilson's 35 million in 2019 was the top, then, Aaron Rodgers' 50.2 million now is a 43% increase over that number. So that's kind of the work I did quickly here. The tight end position actually carries the highest percent increase. It started at 10, it's now at 15. All right, that $5 million jump is, is the highest percentage increase in all of football, positionally speaking. The problem is, I don't see it pushing much, much higher right now. And there are great tight ends. Yes, Kyle Pitts is going to demand a top-of-the-market contract in two years here. There's no question in my mind. But we just went through an offseason where there were three or four number one picks, first-round picks, that basically just floundered out. I mean, Njoku got a decent contract. Many people think it's a joke of a contract. I think it's actually decent for for what Cleveland is is building right now. But, you know, O.J. Howard's on a one-for-five that's with incentives to, st- go, to go to Buffalo and be Dawson Knox's backup. Evan Engram got a basically one for nine to join t- uh, Jacksonville. It, it, it's been a weird crop. Yes, Dallas Goddard came out of nowhere. Yes, Mark Andrews is Mark Andrews. But the Kittle-Kelsey numbers have kind of been here for the last two offseasons. And I'm not sure anybody's going to really blow those out of the water right now. So the tight end position has become extremely important. It's versatile. It's, it's all over the field. It's 
helping both the run game and the pass game. It always has been. Uh, and we're getting these freak athletes now, like a Kyle Pitts, who's coming out and, and transforming offenses, like a George Kittle, certainly like a Travis Kelsey. But I don't think there's, a, there's enough players, unfortunately, in those roles to really drive the conversation. It's very similar to the running back, okay? I mean, you've got your kind of freaks like, like the McCaffreys and the Delvin Cooks, and certainly the Zeeks there for a few years, that were doing so much on the field that you couldn't help but pay them like a low-tier wide receiver slash upper running back. That's just what they were, you know, the Lavian Bells of the day. That's just what they are. And teams are still looking for those kind of players. There's no question about it. And those players will continue to push the numbers, but they're not going to push them to the degree that everybody else below them will come up enough. And that's the problem with it. You know, the average running back right now is probably four and a half million average starting running back in terms of average salary. So you've got McCaffrey at 16 still. That's still the game right now. You know, Zeke's up there in 15 and change. Dalvin's up there in 15. Kamara's at 14 and change. That's your upper tier. That's your one percenters, all right? Henry's at 12, but he's not that complete back that we're, we're talking about here. So he kind of represents that three down, pounded, pounded kind of running back. That's the top threshold financially there. Everybody else is down. James Conner, they're down even though they're just as effective, maybe just as important to the offense. So the gap is widening for the tight end and the running back position because we do have three or four players, you know, generationally speaking, that deserve to go way up, but it's not drawing everybody else with them. That's not the case with the wide receivers. All right. And I can tell you that Tyreek Hill's 30 million is the new threshold. And, and that's what I have to say because it's on paper as such which represents a 36% increase over the past three years. It's a huge increase. But that's not the conversation. The conversation is the anti-running back tight end conversation, which is everybody has come up because of it. All right, We think Nelson Aguilar's $11 million per year is crazy with New England, but now it's a third of what the top wide receiver in football makes. And that was 10 months apart, Aguilar's contract versus Tyreek Hill's contract. So there was just a sense of where this was going. Everybody knew where this was going. Devontae Adams' trade and sign was going to be as massive as it was going to be, regardless of where he was going. And there's really no stop in sight until, until, and I've been kind of warning this for, man, about a year and a half now, until organizations just decide we're not going to do this, which is what they did with the running back. There's going to be two or three guys in the league, not on my team, in the league that dictate this kind of finances. And if they're not those guys, we're going to offer middle-of-the-road money. And when they say no, we're just going to go back to the draft and do this again. And or acquire somebody off a roster who's maybe played himself into an overpriced entity on a certain roster. You know, At some point in time, is Mike Evans going to be too much in the post-Tom Brady era for Tampa Bay to swallow? Will he become the next member of the Philadelphia Eagles you know, or the next member of the Buffalo Bills? That is how things are going to operate. Things have slowly, I mean, that, was, that used to be how things were. And then there was a gap when the salary cap hit. Oh, we can't take on any more dead cap. We can't do that. From 2010 to like 2017, the mindset changed because nobody wanted to take on dead cap. It was all about reducing your, your exterior debt or cap so that your active cap could be as efficient as possible. Those days are gone, <laughs> right? Uh, all of your top teams are, are accepting the fact that they have to have turnover, that they have to be a little bit more savvy and creative with how they build their teams. 
So you're seeing a Stefan Diggs come into Buffalo. You're seeing many big players move onto rosters mid-contract. Mari Cooper jump onto Cleveland here with a $20 million salary, but basically a one-year $20 million contract. Those kind of moves are going to be how good teams stay good, stay aggressive, how the team building process continues, and or you're just simply going to trade somebody for assets, use those assets to go back into the draft and get the next guy in line, which is what Tennessee has done. Right? We're going to trade A.J. Brown right now because we don't want to go to $100 million with him. And we're, going to re- and we're going to draft his replacement literally two minutes later. Right? That's going to be a thing at this position, in my opinion. That's how this is going to work for the wide receiver position. So while right now there's a very healthy pipeline of money coming from, boy, I'd say about 40% of the veteran wide receivers. It's that good right now. It's very, a lot of wide receivers are getting good pay right now. Some are getting great pay. But I think my concern is that that middle class is about to shove way down like the running backs have had happen. And that one to two to 3% of top tier wide receivers will continue to slowly push this envelope. I don't know how much more past 30 they're going to go, by the way, but, you know, in the recency. But the gaps will widen because of what happened this offseason. And teams will say, forget it, we're going to the draft, forget it, we're going to poach somebody off a roster, and we're going to continue down this train. There's too many ways to get a good wide receiver for this path to continue, continue, continue. And I've been saying this for about a year and a half now, but I think we're really at a, at a turning point time with some of these big, big contracts that really may have scared some teams off. And they're just going to say, no, it's not for us. It's not for, I think Tennessee's one of them. It's not for us. We'll find other ways to fill in the blanks. And uh, I think they've already shown that they've, they can do that. If it can be successful, that's just more ammo for other teams to go and do it as well. Quickly down the list here. Defensive tackles because of Aaron Donald, of course, but, but some others. You know, there's been some really nice contracts to versatile linemen who can go edge, who can go interior, who can do a little bit of everything. That's been a 40% increase over the past three years. They're now obviously over $30 million with Donald's new deal. Um, and by the way, I will be doing a median version of this once rosters kind of finalized to sort of assess, okay, where are, the, where are the starters getting paid now versus where the starters in 2019 were getting paid on a median level? not just from a top-down level. Edge rushers, only a 19% increase. Khalil Mack was $23.5 million in 2019, and now it's at $28 million with TJ Watt right now. Now, Nick Bosa is going to push past this, in my opinion. He'll be up there with Donald. So there will be a plus 20% here at some point in time. But, you know, and I've said this quite a bit over the past while, it seems to be leveling off a little bit at the edge rusher position. And I think that that has to do with the notion I just laid out for the wide receivers. We have seen some guys hit free agency, the Clownies, the Chandler Jones, uh, the Ngakwes. We have seen some players be traded out of franchise tags, out of fifth-year options. There's been some movement in this regard, Vaughn Miller. So I think that that maybe iteration has already happened where, all right, if we love a guy, we will go up with him. And we will keep him for a while, but we're probably not going to keep him through the remainder of this contract, whether that's a, an outright release, whether that's a trade to a contender in midseason. I think we're going to see more and more of that, which is really good for the game. Because obviously these edge rushers are big names, a lot of star power, a lot of marketability. You move a player like a Max Crosby in three years, it's going to be good for the game. You know, Khalil Mack just got moved. Obviously, Von Miller moved last deadline. Those kind of players moving around in the game is just good for football, good for the business of football. So. Um, I believe we've started to see that iteration already happen with the, with the edge rushers. 
and maybe a bit of a leveling off at their at their price point. Like I said, I think that's coming for the wide receiver market pretty quickly here. Cornerbacks have jumped up 40% thanks to Jalen Ramsey, Tredavious White, and a couple of contracts this offseason as well. Big-time movement. We saw it coming. It didn't happen for the safeties. All right? Jamal Adams certainly reset this market because of his trade value. And he's this, at 17.6, he's the high man. But this thing was at 14.1 three years ago. All right? So there's very little movement here, about 25% increase. increase. But when you put that up against the cornerbacks or the wide receivers that they're trying to shut down, the, their money pales in comparison. Um, you know, there's some players out there, Derwin James, Jesse Bates, looking to push this envelope even more. I think Derwin will get his money in the next couple of weeks. I don't know about Jesse Bates, but I think this is going to continue to slowly trickle, unfortunately. They're going to be lagging behind those cornerbacks quite a bit here. It's, a, it's nearly a $5 million gap between cornerback and safety right now at the top of the market. So that's always been the case. I thought, I thought at some point with the versatility of a player like Tyron Matthew and, and some of those guys, maybe a Kyle Hamilton can, can kind of uh, resuscitate that conversation. But I thought there was going to be a point where the quasi-linebacker safety role was going to really push this market up, and it just hasn't. It just hasn't. It's, it's really kind of trickled and leveled off a little bit here. Offensive linemen, everybody knows this has moved quite a bit. What you may not know is just how consistently it's moved. So the, the offensive tackles are still the, the kings here, the 27% increase. You've got a couple of guys now making north of $23 million per year at the, at the left tackle market. But guards have shot up almost 20%. Centers have shot up exactly 20%. And when Quentin Nelson signs his extension in Indianapolis, I, I expect those guards to push past the 20% mark. So um, the interior linemen on both sides of the ball have become as important as ever. And that's not by accident. As quarterbacks are releasing the ball quicker, it's less about edge rush. It's more about inside rush. It's more about shutting down those big guys in the middle, trying to push through your centers and your interior guards. And teams have, have built that way accordingly. You've seen a lot of free agent guards movement. You've seen a lot of acquisitions, a lot of earlier draft picks for these two positions specifically, centers and guards. Like we've seen a first round pick on a center every year for the past three, four drafts. There's a lot more substance in having these players, not only on rookie contracts, but even if you, if you find a good one, paying them top of the market, right? We saw that in Detroit. We've seen that in a couple of places now. I, I expect these numbers to continue to push, not to the level of the left tackle or the right tackle even, which has really caught up nicely in the past three years. But I expect these numbers to push. And then we got linebackers. One of the lowest percentage increases ever. So this is your off-ball linebacker, which is led by Darius Leonard and players like that. C.J. Mosley at the inside linebacker position still holds that with the ridiculous Jets free agent contract that I know they regret every day. Um, it's going to be tough to see this push, the off-ball stuff. I mean, this is the running back of the defensive side of the ball. And I think these numbers will continue to drop in terms of percentage increase. If I do this next year, 2019 to 2023, this is a number I expect to see dropping. I think the running back may come up a little bit. By the way, only a 6% increase. Zeke Elliott's 15 at 2019. CMC's 16 at 2022. That's where we are. Only special teamers have, have a, a worse percentage increase than running backs. But if I tell you the linebackers are 16 right now, I'd expect that to be in the lower teens, even just a year for now, because of the lack of movement over the next couple of years. Now, you're Roquan Smith, a couple of these players are going to get paid. But to what degree is that sliding scale going to move? 
We'll see. The special teams, as for mentioned, kickers are flat. We had a $5 million kicker in 2019. Justin Tucker is still that player in 2022. Punters have dropped minus 7%. All right. We had a three, almost $4 million per year player. That's now 3.6. It's just a, it's just kind of a revolving door. And it's not so much that they're changing teams, but they're being released out of contracts, uh, re-signed to restructured extensions that just kind of lower the average salary, put some guaranteed dollars in their hand. They're being manipulated financially speaking, unfortunately. And, uh, Look, as the game is changing and the model is changing, I don't see much improvement there as well. Long snappers are trickling up a couple hundred thousand every year. That's just the going rate for that. Um, and we'll see where the special teamers really go in the next four or five years. As like I said, the gameplay changes and what happens to kickoffs and what happens to punts and all that fun stuff. So not going to knock on that stuff too much. It's, I think if I did a 10-year expansion on that it would look just like that maybe not a minus for a punter but through this three to four year window that i that i picked out here that just happens to be how the cards were dealt so you know long story short none of these positions probably surprise you with the exception of maybe the edge rusher and maybe some of those interior offensive linemen for, for their respective percentages but to me it, it's more about the story that's coming out of the numbers like i said the tight ends look like they're leading the day at 50 percent increases but if you really look at what happened over the past two, two off seasons, it seems like we're really leveling off here. And we need some serious star power to come out of college and play this position, you know, this specific role, like the Pitts, like those kind of players. Because the Hawkinsons have, have kind of flamed out on us, the Engrams, the Howards. It's been a weird 18 months for what was supposed to be an excellent class of, wide, of tight ends, really starting to push this gamut towards 20 million a year. So. They're, they're li literally half of what the wide receivers are making now, even though, like I said, the wide receivers could be in for a bit of a shock here over the next three to five years. All right, and finally, a full bounce around the, uh, the sports world today on, on, the, on this episode of the Spot Drive Podcast. I'm turning the baseball. You're going to see a lot of news about the Baltimore Orioles because there's some, there's some uh, trouble in the ownership model with the family kind of suing each other, kind of pushing each other out of the business. And you're going to see a lot of really smart people basically say, just sell this team. I am in the camp of agreeing with that. This is an organization that should be one of the Premier League's teams in this league. They are located in a situation that is a hotbed for baseball. I realize the Ravens are there. I realize it's a military town. I realize it's a college football town, although it hasn't been to some degree for, the, for a while now. You know, it's been an, an above average, but not elite college football town. This is a, a stadium that, that is revered around the country. This is an organization that has a lot of history that we are trying to attach ourselves to or at least keep ourselves attached to. And they do have a youth movement. They do have, they have drafted well. Some of these guys have flamed out, yes, and they don't have the pitching, not even close to the pitching, to really compete in this ridiculous AL East. Okay, and I'm not, and I'm not knocking them for that. I don't think anybody would do well right now looking up at Tampa Bay, Toronto, <laughs> Boston, and New York. And they've struggled with this for a long, long time. But you can't sit here and tell me that things are as they should be in Baltimore because of the division. And then also tell me that now three months in, they're still carrying a $45 million cash payroll. I can't do that. They're dead last in baseball. They're behind Oakland, who has been made fun of left and right for payroll and lack of attendance. They're behind them by $2.5 $2 million less of a payroll than the Oakland Athletics. 
They're $23 million behind the third lowest Cleveland Guardians. All right? They are they're $215 million behind the New York Mets. Two fifteen, And that's just cash. I'm not talking about the luxury tax. I'm not talking about... I'm talking about salaries adding up on the 26-man roster and the injured reserve, and I think that's been retained or buried in the minor leagues. Okay? $215 million gap between number one Mets, number 30 Orioles. So don't tell me that you weren't able to secure the free agents you wanted. Don't tell me that, you know, you just didn't want to leave some of your prospects to get in some kind of veteran experience via trade. All that's possible. Because you're not in a ghost town. This is one of the better baseball towns in the entire league. All right. I can understand Oakland making this kind of having this kind of conversation. And we have it for them, by the way. I could even see Cleveland having this conversation. And by the way, they do just fine on the trade market. It's just good GMing, it's good creative work. Okay. And by the way, Pittsburgh is that kind of team. And Pittsburgh's carrying almost a $70 million payroll right now. 70. 25 million more than the Baltimore Orioles. Baltimore's flat out not trying, and it's been years and years of this. Okay. You can do a five year perspective on the Baltimore Orioles payroll, and they haven't been over $100 million in payroll since 2018. Not at all. Last year, 2021, sure, COVID, you know, coming off the COVID year, $42 million at the end of the year with a 28 man roster in September. $42 million, less than what we're talking about right now. So what? Is that their, is that their answer? Well, we've added some payroll. <laughs> okay. It's $3 million. We've added some payroll. And they haven't even made their deadline trades yet, which you know it's going to happen because bad teams stay bad. If there's an ownership rift here, to me, it's less about what's going on internally and more about the decisions that are being made for the business of this franchise. They're just flat out not trying. They're not. And I realize it's difficult for bad teams to get good players. But if you've got prospects, especially position player prospects, right? The guys that aren't going to immediately drive you into 100 wins because you need the pitching to get there, as we've been saying now for a decade. If you've got position player talent, and I realize Cedric Mullins is a player and he's got some health issues and things like that, and you probably don't want to lose him as a cornerstone of your franchise. But every big contender in this league wants that player right now. And is probably willing to give you a top 25 prospect with an arm to come back. Those are the kind of moves you have to make. If you've got players, position players who can, who can show their stuff in the major league level, you have to turn those into pitching right now. And then once you have the pitching, you can go fishing for free agents. You can go fishing for bats. You can go pay for home runs. That's how baseball works now. That's how it works. That's why the Yankees bought Joey Gallo. That's why the Yankees bought Giancarlo Stanton. All right? They had a couple of pitchers in the system that they, that they were banking on at the time. And yes, they bought Garrett Cole because that's what the Yankees can do. And that's what the Baltimore Orioles probably can never do. But there's a, there's a formula to this that every franchise has done. Trade your position players. Get yourself pitching. Draft pitching. Acquire pitching. Load up on pitching. When you have three pitchers, and Cleveland consistently has three pitchers, then you go fishing for home runs and doubles and average. Baltimore's just not playing the game. Not from a business standpoint. I like a lot of the kids in the roster. I think they have drafted properly, but that's just not enough in this league. It's not like the other sports. You can't just draft and say, all right, let's go win the World Series. It's an A plus B plus C plus D formula, and they're only doing one part of their job, in my opinion. So if there's an ownership rift right now, and the uh, threat is to sell this team, 
not move this team, sell this team. Let's get somebody in there who wants to spend some money on the roster and spend some money on a GM who is willing to be creative in all facets of this game and get themselves proper pitching from every channel possible, not just washed up free agents who want to extend their careers by playing for the Baltimore Orioles. That day, those days have to be done because $45 million payrolls in 2022 just aren't going to cut it. All right. My thanks to The Athletic. Visit theathletic.com slash track. Get yourself 40% off that first year. And check out dynastyowner.com. Our friends over there are cranking away at the 2022 version of the salary cap fantasy football game. Dynastyowner.com. Get you started right now. For Scott Allen, my name is Mike Gennetti. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Track Podcast. 